This evening's talk is <clears throat> about transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And we'll be exploring our topic this evening as one particular aspect of the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana, and also how unwholesome or afflictive emotions affect uh, or manifest uh, as one aspect of dukkha. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and a temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended <clears throat> a meeting of uh, Dharma teachers that included uh, teachers from many of the uh, various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, uh, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. And the Dalai Lama, who was, uh, was one of our guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often uh, that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define a realization or liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of Nibbana, being complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an Arhant, an enlightened being. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in really truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I have uh, sat with Saida Upandita and when I've practiced with my teacher Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha also often speaks of freedom in the same way. As our confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to <clears throat> get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim uh, of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and 
mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know to really directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and certain states of mind of heart decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. We begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more and more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes a deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows. Along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha, the heart, mind of a Buddha, sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging or condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be quite an inspiration for us, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there have been times when 
I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and in relationship with the practice. And when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teaching through my practice. And I've found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and grown. My Burmese teacher, Venerable Pawak Saidao, says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. This is what the Buddha taught. In a practice interview with Pawak Saidao, at one point I went in and said, this is too hard. And Saidao looked at me with a great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter. And he simply said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind, of heart, that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them. To work with them in our practice, in the light of purification. In the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from an idealistic or from some philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new angers, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, etc. It's a long list. From our present life experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored, 
or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that might have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet, when they appear. And this is important to remember, when they appear. Our practice isn't about dredging up or digging up afflictive states of mind. Maybe there are uh, some people uh, who seem to be able to find a really, uh, a truly true happiness, a true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons. And how great for them. <laughs> but actually, I've never met anyone like this. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find really a, a true depth of happiness in our life. Otherwise, we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and kind of buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around for a long time, often unconsciously, unwittingly. And in light of this, uh, Stephen Mitchell's uh, version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools, the tools of concentration, mindfulness, metta, and compassion, each of which help us to experience our experience or open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind, the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. As I know uh, from interviews, many of you feel, as I do, that this is just such an amazing process. 
learning to open to our experience from the deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. To see just what is right here, right now. And begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. We notice. We know how it is in this present moment. The breath, the body, feelings, the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this moment. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in kindness, the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that Fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a, a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing attitude. We begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relation to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha. <clears throat> Rain saddens what is kept wrapped up but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free uh, from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And some words from Bhante Gunaratana in relationship to this. View all problems as challenges. 
Look upon negatives that arise as opportunities to learn and grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. <laughs> More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted, clearly seen, and investigated. And as you know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. The rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves. And through this process of opening to and relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. <clears throat> the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says this, or said this, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a, a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships including the arising of fear, anger, 
judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet, I think often we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though really quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future, solidifying both in our mind, and yet life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life, not an absolute. Here in Taos, during the midsummer and uh, through early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in this big open sky of Taos, during the monsoon, we often have huge arcs of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together, just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, all of our experiences of body, mind, and heart are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. The other side of the coin, of course, being pushing away, avoiding, resisting. 
our practice is about present moment awareness. Really, truly being in the present. This present moment and this present moment and this one and ongoing. Just as it is right now. And right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different, that causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment, and on and on it goes, all of which we can see if we take a close look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, or something that we ignore. And we have a saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. <laughs> in the uh, clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground <clears throat> that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or concealment of the truth, the real nature of things. With this, there's an absence of right or an absence of true understanding. And this is experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering not our true nature. Just two of the many <clears throat> hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. <clears throat> so going on now with exploring a, a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like, I just can't be with this experience, this maybe unfamiliar or new experience or strong emotional state or pain in the body. Or maybe at times even this pleasurable experience. 
I can't be with this moment of life and maybe feeling frozen or feeling caught. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we believe it, it's his fault, it's because she or because they and you can fill in the blank. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, maybe feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us, perfection. And really all of this is based in fear. I'd like to offer you uh, another approach to perfection other than probably how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this is from uh, Taoist uh, Master Chang Tzu. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, really afraid to look at it directly, especially if when we've taken a peek it might not have been so easy. Years ago, um, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview uh, and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. When I first heard this, um, my inward reaction was, well, I didn't say it out loud, but was, well, that's really easy for you to say. (laughs) Obviously quite a taste of uh, resistance and irritation in my thought. But actually, eventually, I began to see that fear is just fear. As we gently open-heartedly persevere in our practice of mindfulness and concentration based in kindness towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, come close to it, look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it. 
and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. 12th century Persian poet Hafiz says this, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger, as our heart gets stronger, and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to steadfastly stand in the fear to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly. See through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. And a poem from Wendell Berry that says this in his very special way. I go among trees and sit still all my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. <clears throat> the Buddhist teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things different relationship than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, patterned. And of course it doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. <clears throat> Putting a tight lid on top of emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities keeping the possibility then of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. 
This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor, as I mentioned uh, previously a little while ago, is this practice about purposefully dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught up and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. As a concerted Samatar concentration practice unfolds, these same principles apply. Though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in Vipassana practice. Unless, of course, an unwholesome state blows up into becoming a very, very pervasive and sticky state of mind. So now taking a look uh, at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. So from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. Some time ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine people would begin to get close to her and then feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and move away. Consequently, she was a very lonely person, and yet so identified in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life, if she let go of anger. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. 
One often feels quite restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. And with anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a kind of line has been drawn that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see uh, is that irritation, anger, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive state of mind depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So what are some of the ways we can work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing uh, bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see that the thoughts are spinning out the stories of anger, or fear, or doubt, or greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment. It's very helpful to try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body, feeling the emotion directly and in itself, without the story. What are you feeling? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, How is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning at this point, what your relationship is to these sensations. Notice this. 
Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might walk even a bit faster than you usually do. Bring attention directly into the body with this walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside. The expanse of the fields, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, rabbits, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, in the breath, if you're practicing concentration. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Again, from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often taught in dialogue with his students. And the student asks, what is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered with wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I'm this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost. The energy isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or some kind of recognition. 
with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend uh, just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A very blatant uh, current example of this with greed being the root of our worldwide economic crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And as we've already mentioned, uh, there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. It's in part what got you to this retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer, uh, a personal practice, I was told, of uh, Mother Teresa. And I'll read it just as uh, it was offered to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Very soon after I received this prayer, this practice of Mother Teresa's, a, a friend called on the phone and I said, oh, you have to hear this, and I read it to him over the phone. And his uh, response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. 
<laughs> and we do. We have a lot to do. It's true. <laughs> but I find uh, this practice or this prayer quite um, inspiring. I think that many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe even here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit that you had on your last retreat a year or two or three ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire. That's the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So really a good question you might ask yourself once in a while. How driven am I by my desires? And a simple, quite mundane uh, personal example. Some years ago, <clears throat> I was at a retreat center in, here in northern New Mexico that has one of the most uh, wonderful flower gardens that I had ever, ever, ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very pleasant. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of a kind of burning irritation in the mind. I got up and walked away to do what was needed to be done next, but there was still a clinging to the sweet smell even though it had completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to that garden and imagining how nice it would be when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind. A moment of suffering. And it can happen so quickly. 
as we spoke about the other evening, to sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to really see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart and mind that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. As we begin to see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think for many people, there's often some confusion, a delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this clinging, this attachment feels good. And I think it's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see and know it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire, and even more important, a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of release from the stress of clinging, liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on through each and all of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred. Jealousy. Fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, uh, I found a recipe. I've given it to some of you, but you'll get to hear it again. <laughs> and maybe it's a recipe that you occasionally cook up. So here it is. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. And the ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. Four sprigs of envy mixed for garnish. And here's what you do with all of these ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking sit in. <laughs> Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. <coughs> In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. 
Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. <laughs> Pour in idealized world view and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. <laughs> Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. <clears throat> and from uh, a, a similar uh, teaching but with different words from the Chinese sage Nan Shen. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.